Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report Business Roundtable. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. December inflation comes in higher than expected. Oil prices rise after allies retaliate to stop Houthi attacks on international shipping in the Red Sea. Washington eyes a budget deal. The FAA increases oversight over Boeing's manufacturing after loose bolts are found on 737 MAX 9 jets, now rebranded the 737-9. Berlin drops its ban on exporting Eurofighters to Saudi Arabia. And Lockheed Martin Skunk Works rolls out its latest experimental jet for NASA, the X-59. Joining us today to discuss all this and more are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Securities and Richard Abalafia of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy, unfortunately, Sash Dusa of the Independent Equity Research Room Agency Partners. And one of our regulars is unable to join us today, but we'll be back uh, again next week. Guys, welcome uh, back to the show. It wouldn't be uh, a weekend, a holiday weekend uh, without you. Hope everybody is having a great Martin Luther King Day, or I should say Martin Luther King Day, as well as uh, a holiday weekend run. Uh, inflation in December came in a bit higher than uh, expected, uh, which has some worried that the Fed might not be cutting rates uh, this year, as uh, the central bank has suggested. And because of the Yemeni attacks on international shipping and uh, U.S.-led stri- uh, strikes uh, on Houthi missile sites, oil prices have been rising. What's on investors' minds now that we're going, uh, you know, getting into 2024? Uh, and how is that impacting the group's uh, performance uh, as we move into earnings season? Yeah, it's a good good question, Bago. Um, when, when you think about inflation, I mean, the, the view was coming into this year was pretty much everything is awesome. Uh, we're going to have a soft landing. Inflation is going to be out of control. I mean, a very, very consensus view. Um, having the inflation print higher than expected, I think, kind of shook people a little bit um, be- because that's off script. That's not what was you know supposed to happen. Uh, but it's just one month. We'll see what happens. But it's it's something to watch. Uh, and you know, like I mentioned, uh, I think on our, our last podcast, I'm always a little cautious when you have such a strong consensus view in one direction. Um, just a reminder, you know, last year going into the year last year. Uh, the consensus view was we we're going to have a recession and, and it never happened. So um, just have to be careful around those consensus views. Um, on oil prices, you know, WTI closed out the week at 73. Uh, Brent crude uh, was at 78. There's typically a $5 difference between them. Still $5 difference. It's not particularly high, not particularly low. So, you know, given, you know, given what's going on in the Red Sea, it really didn't have a huge effect. Uh, you know the, the 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 measure of fear in the market, the, the so-called VIX index that we that we watch, it closed the week at you know thirteen and a little bit, um, not particularly high. You know, just sort of you know at the lower end of the range it's been. Uh, the S and P actually had a really good week. I mean, the S and P was up almost two percent. Um, the big underperformers of the week, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, right? Is uh, Spirit Oil Systems was down almost fifteen percent. Boeing was down thirteen percent. You know, the defense names, no big surprise, kind of given what's going on in the Red Sea. Northrop was up 2.5%. Lockheed was up 1.5%, um, just as, you know, kind of bellwethers. Uh, and, and, and and we broadly saw that. Um, you know, the other commercial aerospace names were, you know, kind of either in line with the S&P, maybe just a little bit ahead, a little bit behind. But um, the two standouts were, were Boeing and Spirit with the downside, given the news there. Um, and we're uh, going to, and Richard's going to start us off talking about Boeing uh, in in just a, a, a moment. Um, we've got uh, a budget deal 
and we looks like we're going to get a short term continuing resolution. Keep government open until we have a, you know, all the appropriations bills and everything gets sorted out. It's going to be eight hundred eighty six billion dollars is the expectation on the defense side. The um, discretionary uh, rest of federal government side, and I think it's going to be like seven hundred forty something. Are um, investors asking anything about that? And what are your expectations on earnings as companies start to report uh, this week? Yeah, so um, we, we haven't had many questions on that, although I think that was probably a little bit reflected in the defense performance last week. So if we really do get $886 billion and a supplemental that's on the order of $100-105 billion, you add that all up and you're just a smidge under a trillion, right? It's a big number. Um, right, yeah. right? It's a you know, big, big number. Um, but we haven't had a ton of questions about that yet. Um, you know, going into the, the the long weekend, I think everybody was really focused on uh, the Max Nine and Boeing and what's it mean and so on and so forth, right? And that I think you know deflected attention away from what was going on uh, in, in the budget environment. Uh, as we roll into earnings, I think I think a couple things. Um, one, uh, there'll be a, a lot of focus on again, kind of back to Boeing and what they talk about production rates, so on and so forth. Um, across the Atlantic, and not to speak for Sash, but I will for a moment, you know, kind of what Airbus says and what they're doing, um, the health of the supply chain. Uh, I think there'll be a focus on, on commercial aerospace aftermarket and the aftermarket outlook and aftermarket growth. Um, so, you know, some investors are getting in a little more of a bearish camp on the aftermarket, given that the second derivative of aftermarket growth is, is most likely negative, right? Still growing, but growing at a slower rate. Um, and then on defense, uh, you know, defense is kind of an open question. And you know, when do we really start to see this big ramp up? We started, we've we've experienced in the budget really start that that flywheel. When does it really start to spin? And we start to see that impact on the defense contractors, not just on backlog, but on their top lines and and so on and so forth. Uh, but I think you know broadly that's what we're looking for. We we get into the real depths of uh, earnings in about two weeks. Richard, uh, start us off one word, Boeing. Not sure. It's one word. Uh, one word. Uh, <laughs> I mean, um, it, it's it sometimes uh, takes a hyphen in between. Um, but you know, crap show. Jesus. Um, it it's just kind of a bizarre story. You've got very serious and glaring cultural issues here, and they show up sometimes in design. They show up sometimes in manufacture. But you've got a senior management that seems. <laughs> frankly, completely unconcerned with the core business of building aircraft uh, and certifying them too. <laughs> um, they know exactly one thing, which is the bottom line and not a whole lot else. And it's just going to keep showing up. I'm still in the school of thought that says there's not a lot. Um, I, I wouldn't have a lot of concern about the fix for this particular issue. But the FAA is starting to notice. It's not really clear what they will do. Um, you know, you've got an across-the-board problem here, and it shows up both in the civil and military side of the house. So the question becomes: um, What can change this? Otherwise, you're simply going to have a year ahead and years ahead of further headlines, just like this: manufacturing issues, quality escapes massive overruns on the defense side of the house this is the easiest call to make in the world for people who have our job right i mean now in terms of tangible changes moving forward uh, it's very clear that there'll be a slower ramp just as things get checked and of course the faa asserts itself more into the 
you know, certification process for, for each aircraft. Um, but, you know, show me how this ends, very simply. And I, I should point out, right, I mean, this is a little bit rich. I'm not at all coming to Boeing's defense. But there were multiple layers of inspections that failed here, all right, for loose bolts to be on fuselage plugs uh, that are are getting out there, right? I mean, unfortunately, the the triggering factor was not just the door blowout, was the fact that United and other airlines, when they checked their aircraft, uh, found that there were loose hardware, uh, right? So this could have uh, happened to anybody. Uh, and it looks like there is an issue also with the uh, airline, right? It's great the airplane stayed together. But that particular door had had pressure problems and was not really addressed nor sufficiently inspected either, right? I mean, so I think this is clearly a systems failure. Um, you don't do. How do you respond to Boeing's response to this? I find the phrase "quality escape" to be the most absurd thing I've ever heard. As if like there's a thing called Indeed. quality in a cage and it escaped. <laughs> you know, oh my God, the quality is escape. Um, <laughs> Put it back in the cage. Um, you know, I mean, what, what? How do you, how do you respond to Boeing's response to this? Right? I mean, Calhoun held, held a company-wide call, uh, said how serious this was. You know, took ownership of it. Unlike, unlike during the crashes, which we've we've covered. Um, I mean, is, you know, what what can they do aside from the blocking and tackling inside the company that might not be as apparent to us? At a time when the company has lost a lot of workforce, you know, it's still still got a lot of transition. And you're right, the focus has been on making money. But eventually, if you can't if you can't successfully build your products, right, you, you kind of go out of business. Anyway, it, it, it has it been sufficient. And Ron, I want to bring you in on this in a minute. So many things wrong with this picture. You know, I mean, <laughs> yes, and the quality escape. Oh my goodness, you know, going after it with a butterfly net. Um, I, first of all. You know, the idea, well, they've done all they can to cut costs. That's kind of the fundamental problem, right? I mean, they know the price of everything and the value of nothing. Um, the idea of taking charge and saying, oh, yeah, our bad, it won't happen again. And without any kind of rectification measures, that's completely absurd. And it's a little insulting. The idea is to say, all right, look, let's rethink this. Maybe we have systematically under-resourced this production ramp, both at the supplier level and at our own uh, level. Maybe we've been too focused on finances. Maybe we should provide um, the necessary resources, the necessary people um, to make this happen in a way that actually has adequate resources. And yes, the FAA is under-resourced too. They're not completely innocent, although you know, you've, you've had this government mantra of starve the beast for how many years now? Inevitably, you're going to have regulatory agencies that are under-resourced. This is an across-the-board problem, but let's focus on Boeing because this is a Boeing jet, and they're the only ones with a systematic across-the-board civil and military pattern of bad performance. Now, in an ideal world, you'd see leadership saying, all right, you know, maybe we're under-resourced here. As a matter of fact, 99% of life is showing up, and certainly all of leadership is showing up. You walk the line and talk to the people who build the planes. You go and say, hey, um, there's no one else around, or they're not interfering. It's just you and me talking. Are you getting adequate resources to do what you're doing? And do this at the supplier level, too. Basically, get out there and see whether things are going in a way that is going to make things better. I'm not seeing any evidence. All I'm seeing is people saying, oh, this is ours. We will fix it. You go and fix it. This needs to be a cultural change, starting with something we've seen for well over a decade now at Boeing, which is a complete disconnect between the folks at the top 
and the people who actually do the work. Ron, uh, did you hear? Did we hear enough for, first about the problem overall, uh, and did we hear enough from Boeing leadership? And has that leadership been clear with the street on what it's going to do to address these problems? They haven't really addressed it with the street. So you know, a couple a couple points. Um, you know, have they done enough? Well, clearly, no. Right? This has been ongoing now for for a number of years. Um, you know, what do you have to do to resolve it? I suspect some of this has to do with, you know, it's easy to say cost cutting and we've all, we've all said that, but as you go to the, the previous ramp and you had a very experienced workforce assembling airplanes, you could probably cut out some redundancies in checking and oversight in light of speed and cost because you had a labor force that was very experienced in what they were doing. When you have a labor force that's either younger or newer or less experienced, that extra set of checking becomes more critical. I suspect, hypothesis here, that some of this was taken out because you had that workforce. Now that you have a different flavor of workforce, less experienced, that you need that overlay back in. And that's going to cost more. Uh, so you're going to need that redundancy. I, I think that's important. Um, when I look at this, it, it to me, it's sort of screaming uh, a, a labor issue. Um, you know, some conversations I've had about this, you know, I spoke to someone who was trying to compare it to the MCAS thing, not even close. Right? You know, MCAS was a, a, a serious engineering poor design. This has nothing to do with that. You know, in this right. case, they didn't tighten the bolts or maybe even the bolts weren't even there. How could that be? Well, if you don't have that second set of eyes or third set of eyes looking at something because you're assuming your workforce is how it was before and it's not, these mistakes can happen. So, you know, so there, yeah, clearly there's more to be done. And then two, and I, oh, and I think sorry. and I think Richard agrees with this. I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he does. This is the 737 also sort of screaming retire me um it's time for a new plane uh part you know part of this is you know how far can you stretch the this 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 airplane you know the flying football the 737-100 the response to the dc-9 this was never meant to be what it is today um and i do fundamentally believe the root of some of this is just this overlay on top of overlay on top of change on top of how much can you do to this poor airframe? It's time to move on. And we've written about that It's time for a new airframe. It's time for new architecture. Um, uh, and in, men, in many ways that would probably get rid of some of this because you're not dealing with a, a fundamental architecture of an airplane that was designed in the early sixties. So I'll leave it there, hand it back to you. Richard, your sense? I mean, it is a terrific airplane. It's very ideal to move an X number of people relatively efficiently from point A to point B. And Richard, you made the case that the nine and the 10 are good airplanes and, and you know, have, you know, and, and they've got a lot of orders. Anyway, your your sense about whether, I mean, hang on, let me just ask one clarification, Ron, and just pause one second here, Richard. Why would, this airplane has been in production for a long time and very little of it is totally new, right? Why would its length and, I mean, why would that matter at all? 
for not tightening bolts or anything. I mean, you know what I mean? A fuselage yeah, plug I is mean, a fuselage it, plug. It doesn't matter what it goes on. It needs bolts to. No, I, 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 I understand that. I just, you know, how can I say it? It's just, to me, the, the airplane is speaking. <laughs> just re, re, retire me. <laughs> now, you, you brought up another very important point that we overlooked. For the MAX 7 and MAX 10 to get their certifications done, they needed an exemption from the FAA for the engine de-icing problem. I haven't dug into this in deep detail, but my understanding is if you have this de-icing system on for five minutes, for more than five minutes, you can have an issue where you have uh, some structure kind of fall off into the engine and that's a problem. They did get the exemption on the eight and the nine. They have to get that exemption for the seven and the 10. Getting that exemption on the seven and the 10 in the current environment optically seems like it would be really difficult to do. We'll see. But I think that's one of the other risks floating around here that the certification of the seven slips and the certification certification of the 10 slips because of that. But but we'll see. Richard, is the airplane talking to you and saying, you know, release me? Let me go to... Um well I understand where Ron is coming from when he says this. Um I'm not sure it's quite that dire i mean at the end of the day the max 8 in particular looks like a good performer for its size class what i think they need to do is abandon yeah this max 9 max 10 um well max 10 i mean the certification issues alone ron is completely right um this just isn't going to happen in the way that boeing thinks it is going to happen possibly even in the max seven too with this de-icing issue and whatever else um but most importantly it is just getting incredibly embarrassing what airbus is doing to boeing on the sales front i mean they're what seven or eight hundred max 10 orders something like that it's hard to tell boeing has stopped breaking them down again um and we're up to some ungodly number of you know seven thousand what are we at 321 neos um again Boeing just needs a new jet. Now, so to slightly, um, you know, to slightly deviate from, you know, what Ron is saying, I would say they they need to go back to the 737-757 formula that they enjoyed for 30 years. It worked great where the 737 is just a fantastic 150-seater. I don't think very much has changed, but you, it just, you know, it becomes less ambitious in terms of covering the waterfront and the product right. lineup. And then they launch a new jet rather than saying, oh, nothing new this decade, which is probably the single most dysfunctional thing that anybody as CEO of an aerospace company has said over the past however many years. You're putting customers on notice that they should get in line for an A321 deal. Hey, that's exactly what has happened since Calhoun made the announcement that they wouldn't be doing anything new. It also guarantees you're going to have that much of a harder time attracting a technical workforce when you've been told you're going to work for a company that has absolutely nothing new in the pipeline for many years to come. It was completely dysfunctional. That alone, to me, disqualifies somebody from being the CEO of a company like this. Uh, so anyway, don't retire the 737 MAX, but replace the MAX 10, absolutely, and abandon hope for its timely certification. 
Um, do you, um, and, and again, I mean, it puts in sharp relief what a great airplane the 757 really was, uh, it was. In, yeah. in so many ways. I mean, it's, it's like Airbus has struck gold with the latter day 757, uh, just without all the wake, uh, turbulence. And I'm sorry if I got the numbers of those wrong. Honestly, there are so many different variants uh, <laughs> of Max that I r regularly, um, um, you know, uh, for, for, forget the specifics of each of them. Ron, let me ask you just one uh, quick section because we do have a lot of other stuff that we've got to talk. Uh, one more question. Would, does the street, would the street understand, you know, the Boeing management uh, and Calhoun have been reluctant to spend any more money to get out of their troubles, whether it's on the defense side, whether it's on the commercial side, right? I mean, that is manifest. But you know, if you're uh, Stan Deal and you're Ted Colbert, you need resources to get yourself out of these pickles, right? You have to spend money to make money. And that philosophy doesn't exist. And in part, I think management is looking to this and say, well, the street's going to hammer us. Well, you know, your little quality escape just costs you a lot. Uh, and it's costing you even more than you can imagine at what point does the company have to go to the street, dial back expectations even more dramatically to say, look, we're going to be in a period where we've got to spend money to make money to save this company, unless it's it's the breakup play uh, that that Richard thinks uh, it, it might be and increasingly people think it might be. How would the street respond to this, right? I mean, what's the adult answer we need to hear from Boeing management? Yeah, I mean, I, I think given everything that's happened, right? I mean, it's you, know, you just kind of look at how the story's played out. If if Boeing were to go to the street and say, hey, this is what we need to do to kind of get on the right track. My guess is the street would be receptive. Now, that would most likely change some financial targets. That would most likely you know, reflect itself in a short-term share price move. I would guess. However, getting the company back on track in the medium term and the long term, there are investors that would want to play that. And ultimately, I mean, you're getting the company back on track is the right answer. So, you know, it, it's kind of like cough medicine, right? I mean, you got to take the medicine, but but when you do, I mean, you're hopefully getting on a path to to get well. And I think enough has happened in both sides of the business that investors I, I think would understand it, right? It's not, hey, you know, these guys are doing great and they're just kind of spending this money willy-nilly. It's, oh, you know what? If we have a well thought out plan, it's gonna cost this, but this can really get us there. There would probably be some receptivity to it. Now, right. the rub is, would investors believe that A, it's enough, and the B, it could actually be done. So you you have to go through a little bit of a kind of the you know the show me period. But if they were to make those investments and demonstrate results, they would get rewarded for it. I absolutely believe that. Uh, Richard, any uh, last uh, thought on this before we uh, move on? Extremely strong endorsement of that view. You know, if you laid out a plan and most of all talked about new people you're going to bring in, you know, the way Pat Shanahan is bringing in new people at Spirit and a lot of recognizable faces. Um, 
I think the street would be, I mean, I don't know the street as well as Ron, but I'm willing to bet that the prospect of de-risking Boeing, an industry, you know, a, a former market leader in an industry with very high barriers to entry and a lot of great potential and a lot of great talent, that would galvanize investor sentiment, absolutely. And especially since if they launched a new plane, within a couple of years, they'd probably get the kind of order numbers that Airbus is enjoying now in that middle market. Uh, it would be, you know... A, that would warm investors' hearts to see 500, 1,000 orders arrive at a time. Um, so I don't see how this could possibly fail. The only recipe for failure is, let me think, oh, yeah, exactly what they've been doing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, okay, uh, real uh, quick, uh, Richard, uh, Delta uh, became uh, uh, ordered uh, the 350 Airbus A350 uh, 1,000, uh, which will, I think, be the largest aircraft in their fleet. Uh, they were a successful 900 uh, operator. Uh, what does this order for 20 and as many as 40 jets uh, mean uh, overall? Yeah, you know, at the Dubai Air Show, you had Emirates um, basically imply that the 350-1,000 design wasn't quite right in terms of engine power and overall aircraft capability. Uh, this really helps a lot. I mean, expectations are pretty low at this point. The 777X for its class has been doing far better um, and is certainly a more capable jet. But, you know, having Delta endorse it in Order 20 is a, a shot in the arm. I mean, it's been a one-a-month program since it began. And sure enough, I think last year right. they delivered 11 or something like that. So getting an order for 20, uh, I think, is uh, is certainly a, a welcome move. It, very simply, Airbus, uh, you know, ironically for the company that uh, that that <laughs> launch the A380 in the finest act of uh, self-immolation in the history of the business, um, has uh, a rather weak presence at the top of the market. So this definitely helps. Um, just uh, very quickly, tell the audience, uh, you know, like the one-minute uh, version. Let's just go back for the max for a second. The difference between the, the 7, the 8, the 9, and the 10. Because I think that there are people right now sitting there going like, whiskey tango foxtrot like which is which and what is what so give people sure. the one minute primer on what all of this means so that people aren't sitting there right now go like either looking it up or going oh what does that all mean sure the uh the max 7 in typical configuration is about 124 seats uh, primarily for southwest that's the overwhelming biggest own i think only significant user the max 8 is where the overwhelming bulk of orders come from it's right in the heart of well what used to be the heart of the market at 150 or 160 seats uh the 9 is somewhere in the 190 obviously all of these can be configured in higher density but the 9 is about 190 and the max 10 is somewhere in the, the 210 range, depending upon configuration. The problem with the 10 is that even though it has um, not two different seating capabilities, the 321neo, you lose an awful lot of range. just simply doesn't have the engine to match the 321neo. So the this year, we'll see deliveries of the 321neo XLR, which gets them to about 4,500 nautical miles. Right. Um, the max 10 is 3,000 or less. Right. Uh, and hence, hence the airplane, the airplane is talking to you. Um, uh, very quickly, uh, let's talk about uh, European orders because I want to end on the X-59 and get Ron's uh, take on that. Talk to us a little bit. You know, Sash would normally be spearheading this discussion. Uh, Berlin is dropping its objection to exporting uh, Eurofighters to Saudi Arabia um, at, at a time when both uh, teams SCAF uh, with uh, France, Germany, and Spain uh, is competing against Team Tempest with uh, the UK, Italy, uh, and Japan, uh, working really hard to bring 
bring aboard either the Saudis or the Emiratis. Walk us through uh, the the dropping of of their objections and what it means sort of more broadly. You know, I think it's a significant move because, of course, Saudi Arabia is one of the very biggest uh, arms export markets on the planet. And if it's uh, not addressable for human rights issues, um, then why are you in the arms export business? I'm not saying it should or shouldn't be. It's just from a practical standpoint. Um, and of course, they already purchased uh, a tranche of Eurofighters. There was the very big question from the, the Saudi perspective, what they could buy. They're not ready for F-35s. They're already perilously close to becoming an all F-15 fleet, aside from that first batch of, uh, I believe, 48 Eurofighters. And they want to maintain a balance between the U.S. and Europe. Uh, the Raphael order book has it said, you know, they'd have to wait, wait until they're like in the 2030s before they got any Raphaels. So what is there to buy? Um, Eurofighter was the very obvious you know, answer. And now that answer is uh, is feasible because of this uh, German about face on willingness to sell. So that's good from a Saudi perspective. It's good from a Eurofighter perspective. And then getting back to the FCAS question, it gives them a bit of a lease of life. I, I, I still think there are structural problems associated with uh, with SCAF, FCAS, what have you. Um, basically, the French want pretty much all of the work <laughs> and expect the Germans to pay for, you know, 50% or something in exchange for getting much, much less of the work. That That is a very big obstacle, too. But at least from the standpoint of planning for future exports, that situation's been somewhat uh, that that problem has been somewhat solved by this uh, this development. And give the audience uh, a quick update on where we stand with the Rafal. Yeah, basically, you've got another tranche of orders arriving from Indonesia, um, and you already had a pretty robust order book of about two hundred planes. And then on top of that, um, the French Air Force and and uh, I presume Navy have just ordered forty two more. So the order book is two fifty, two sixty, something like that. Um, that is uh, pretty impressive, um, and especially since, you know, unfortunately for them, production has been stuck in the one per month range, something along those lines. They're trying to get it to two and then three, but like every other defense program on the planet, there is serious supply chain concerns about that. Uh, I, either way, it's the most, it, I guess, of, of all of the defense programs out there, it has the highest ratio between demand and, uh, and output. Uh, Ron, uh, let's end this on a uh, fun note. I uh, wanted to get your take on uh, the X-59, uh, the new uh, uh, supersonic um, uh, boom attenuating uh, demonstrator uh, that the Skunk Works uh, has built uh, for NASA. Uh, completely different looking airplane uh, and and something quite unique uh and doesn't even have any forward facing windows so a little bit reminiscent of the spirit of st louis anyway talk to us a little bit about this aircraft and and what it means yeah it's pretty cool right so if you think about the design of most other supersonic aircraft it's all about shaping the vehicle to be efficient supersonically right so there's you know the, the something called the area rule where the the, the cross-sectional area shouldn't change pretty rapidly if it does you can get shock waves and shock waves cause drag and so on and so forth so you have that constraint right so you want to make a vehicle that can fly efficiently supersonically but the added other layer on this aircraft and this is where this gets really cool is the the, the sonic boom um 
the idea is, you know, under certain flight conditions, you can have it fly over land. And by the time the, the shock waves make it to the ground, you shape the vehicle so they can kind of cancel themselves out. So it that you can't fully do it, but you can mush it out. So the you know the the, the strong um, pressure overwave that you would hear that has a kind of a like a popping sound will just sound more like a whoosh as opposed to a pop. Um, and that way, if you can really do this and make it work, it opens the door to flying supersonically over land. Now, if you can fly supersonically over the land, all of a sudden the business case for supersonic aircraft just changed, right? Because you, you, you just opened up a whole other market, right? You just can't, you're not just gonna be flying over oceans or very large lakes or whatever you wanna call it. You can now fly over land supersonically without breaking windows and killing flocks of birds and all the other things that people don't like. Um, so it's super cool. Um, you know, I hope it works. It's a product of, um, I would say, you kind of modern computing technology that you can shape a vehicle that that you know can potentially do this. So, you know, fingers crossed. Let's hope it. Let's hope it works. And if it does, then maybe we'll see uh, yet another leg in the world of uh, high speed travel. Awesome. Uh, Ron, uh, thanks very much. Uh, Richard, uh, thank you very much. Hope you guys have uh, a great uh, holiday uh, and a great week and look forward to having you guys uh, back on again next week. Special thanks uh, to Bell for their generous sponsorship that makes this program uh, possible and a shout out to all of our other sponsors. HII, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, GE Aerospace, Leonardo DRS, and American Rheinmetall. And a reminder for our audience to check out our award-winning weekly podcasts, Cavus Ships, hosted by our very own Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello, and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE Aerospace company, who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters, the downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space, and our Air Power podcast that's also sponsored by GE Aerospace that I co-host with our very own J.J. Gertler. Thanks very much again. And we'll be back tomorrow with uh, our Look Ahead program with Byron Callen of Capital Alpha Partners. And joining us will be the co-host of Cavus Ships, Chris Cervello, uh, with his takeaways uh, from the Surface Navy Association's annual uh, symposium last week. Thanks very much again, and we'll see you again tomorrow. <laughs>